Welcome to BEWorks Conversations. I'm Kelly Peters, the CEO and co-founder of BEWorks. In this series, I talk with the world's leading scientists who are experts in behavior. In each episode, we explore how their cutting-edge research can help us understand and tackle the challenges we face as a society. And we talk about how organizations should apply these insights to move forward during and after COVID-19. I'm very happy you're here. Hi there. Today I'll be speaking with Jonathan Howard, who is Associate Professor of Neurology in New York. John specializes in treating multiple sclerosis and has worked every Sunday in the psychiatric ER at Bellevue for the past decade. He's also the author of the book Cognitive Errors and Diagnostic Mistakes, a Case-Based Guide to Critical Thinking in Medicine. In our conversation, John and I talk about his experience working in the front line in hospitals and treating COVID-19 patients. And we'll also talk about the biases that can influence medical diagnoses. And finally, we have a good conversation about the appeal and challenges of pseudoscientific beliefs. So, um, Barbara, one of the things is that um, we were very curious, you know, customer loyalty has been defined in so many different ways by different business leaders. Um, And then there's also this difference between how business people define loyalty and then how scientific and academic researchers define loyalty. Can you help us just come to the chase? And I'd love to get your point of view on what is customer loyalty. So I've been thinking about customer loyalty actually ever since my dissertation. And in uh, my dissertation, I was when I started my career, I was a stochastic modeler. I actually, I moved a lot since then to become more of a behavioralist. But at the time I was a modeler and we had a very precise definition of loyalty which was basically it was the probability that you would purchase that the same thing twice was higher than the probability you would purchase it only once. So the probability, if you're Coke and Pepsi, the probability that you would purchase Coke might be 60% over everything, but you were loyal to Coke if the probability that you would purchase Coke, given you purchased Coke, was higher than the probability that you just purchased Coke. So it was this notion of once you purchase something, it makes you more likely to purchase it again into the future. So it was a very precise probability. You know, you can say the likelihood you buy anything is somewhat of a random process that's uh, reflected by your preferences. And we used to call that a zero order process. And brand loyalty would be there'd be more systematic behavior in the behavior than just that you would be more likely to buy something once you bought it the first time. And that's loyalty. Now, the problem with that measure as just a metric is it could be habit, it could be behavioral loyalty. Then you start to get into other definitions of what's driving that repeat behavior. So is it habit? Is it mindless? Is it reinforcing? Is it that you tried something, you liked it so much you wanna buy it again? Or is it that you tried something and you just bind it again without any thought. So like there's a lot of different flavors of loyalty, even in a precise definition like that. More often lately, uh, loyalty is thought of in a more strategic way as a completely different philosophy of marketing. And the philosophy of marketing says something like, it's better to get custom, it's better to target to a, group of customers that really like what you're doing and to try to get them to purchase more over time so that you're maximizing what's called the lifetime value of the customer. And the idea there is that it's cheaper to sell more product to an existing customer than it is to keep trying to get new customers. And in that sense, customer loyalty is a strategic decision to go after a particular segment of customers and get more behavior from them or more purchase from them over time. And and the idea of loyalty there, like that idea came in, I would say in the early 90s, 
where marketers used to just try to maximize purchase behavior. I just try to get you to buy what you bought, for, you know, to buy my product. And in really bad salespeople might do whatever it would take to get you to buy what I bought. And the idea of loyalty, you know, really started with the idea of customer satisfaction. The idea that it's not just making the initial purchase, it's what customers think after the purchase that matters because what you really want to maximize is the next purchase. And that I think is the, is the idea of loyalty, not the initial purchase, but the subsequent purchase. So what's, what do you think the best way is for companies to measure uh, that loyalty? Well, I mean, like there's a lot of very sophisticated modeling behavior and we have tons of data now where you can see um, the likelihood of people buying over time and that kind of data. So um, you, you can model that behavior, you know, just by looking at huge populations, you can do choice experiments and things like that to see what's going to drive the next purchase. Um, and you can run very sophisticated regression models on big data to determine what what variables in the marketplace affect customer loyalty. Um, so there's quite a bit of, of measurement that's done on seeing what happens to make customers lo more loyal over time. But uh, again, strategically, um, I think there's a definition of loyalty that I've seen in the better, in the better um, retailers today that says, if you really want to maximize customer loyalty, you kind of have to think of the whole purchase process, not just the transaction. So a lot of, I, the way I call that is I think about talking about the customer experience that's wrapped around the purchase. Um, so it's not just about acquisition utility in some sense. It's not just about acquiring, uh, to use a, a Thaler term, it's not just about acquiring the good. And he, he talked about the difference between acquisition utility and transaction utility. It's also about the utility you have for the whole purchase exchange or transaction. And, and what you're seeing now, if you look at like the Amazon, for example, Amazon is not doing really well now because they have the best products on earth. They're doing really well now because they can get you the product in a convenient way. They can deliver it to your door, especially in terms of COVID. So that's not saying that I'm buying the product that I want because this is my highest preference product and Amazon has the best products. It's saying I'm buying from Amazon because of the customer experience in delivering the product to me efficiently. Um, and even before COVID, a lot of people were buying from Amazon for that reason. And that's a notion of transaction utility. It's not, it's not just about acquisition utility. How do you feel about um, one question measures given the complexity of the value chain that you described? And even, you know, Amazon isn't about a brand of the product, but it is this purchase experience. So do you think that uh, the complexity of retail and the availability of the data and the modeling that you described, does that, does that um, potentially challenge uh, the utility of one question loyalty measures? Well, you know, I don't know, like I'm, I'm, I like to see all sorts of different, you know, all sorts of different behaviors and experiments and things like that. When I look at some of the sophisticated modelers and their, and their measurement of all of this behavior, um, it, it has a lot of predictive ability, you know, if you look and, and they'll talk about like conversion and what's the item that's going to, what, what are the variables that are going to best predict conversion? And they, pro they're pretty good at predicting. They, they have a lot of data and they can tell you under these circumstances. And if you put the ad up here, or if you make the background blue or the whole factor of, you know, of all these different factors, they can really run huge models and the likelihood that they predict you're likely to purchase or purchase again under these circumstances, that's pretty high. You know, you get enough data and you get pretty good conversion. But the problem with that is you're not getting inside people's heads, you're not getting at their perceptions. Um, so you might not be able to predict what they're likely to do if something changes or something like that, because a lot of those models are based on historic data. So you're really not what's going on in their head. On the other hand, when you do any other kinds of 
more behavioral experimentation where you are trying to isolate everything else out and just look at particular, particular things that you're testing in an experiment, then that might not generalize to the real world when the real world is chaotic and all these other factors are coming in. So I kind of like to do research on all these different levels. I like to look at the real marketplace and see what we can learn from that kind of data. And then I really am a believer in experiments so that I can understand what actually moves behavior one way or another. And, and I think I was mentioning to you before, I'm also a big proponent of neuromarketing um, techniques. So I've worked a lot on, with eye tracking in particular. Uh, so you see what people are paying attention to, how long they're looking at something. And what's great about those measures is people can't fake them. So they're, they're just really visceral automatic reactions that, and, and people don't realize how much that affects what they subsequently do. So uh, given what you've said about loyalty um, and the factors that have been important to it in terms of the overall experience, um, how does loyalty look today? And how are retailers either winning on loyalty or being negatively impacted? Um, you know, some of this is I'm asking you to predict what changes we might have to loyalty as a result of, of, of a landscape that's changing every single day, as we were talking about earlier. So you were talking about really today, like COVID today. Is that what you're talking about? What's going to happen? COVID-19 today. Yeah. Yes. So that's very interesting. And I have been thinking about that, you know, in a number of industries, particularly in retail, just because I've been looking at retail and it's so, retail is so affected by all of this. But the implications of this are, of all of this is, for, is true for any industry that's affected by in-person behavior. So you can imagine our education process, our universities are very much affected. Medicine is very much affected. Travel, hospitality, all those other things. So there's like big, big parts of industry that are affected by all this COVID isolation and social distancing that's happening. It's just having a mammoth effect. So that really is the big question. And I think the best way to look at that is in, I think of it as in three boxes. I'm kind of a box person. So <laughs> one box is what's happening right now. So what are the kinds of things that you have to do right now to cope with the fact that at least for the time being, many people are practicing home isolation, social distancing, and things like that. Um, and, and in some sense, you can think of that as natural experiments because you're forcing people to do something or another. It's kind of interesting to see what happens. So you're seeing like immediate reactions to social distancing and to home isolation. First of all, the closing of stores, the changing of, of the hours stores can go in, putting plexiglass up in, you know, in stores or having people walk in a certain way, wearing masks, all of those kinds of things, curbside delivery. That is tactical reaction to here's what's happening. Here's the only way I can transact. And you can watch which ones of those are more effective or not effective. And as people, as non-essential retail starts to open up, as we get to do more things, we learn from what we are learning in grocery and, and, and there are lessons there. But that's very much a short term, hopefully a short term reaction. To me, what's more interesting is what I'm gonna call the second box, which is when, the, when it opens up a little bit, and we try to go back to normal, what will be the changes in behavior that will be fundamentally different for having been through this, let's say, global experiment? Um, so I think you'll see some behavior, I mean, and that's some of the trends people are trying to predict because it has very big implications for how you design business going forward. So one, from a retail point of view, one of the things that's a, the big question, and it's clear to me that the winners are the ones who already anticipated this, which is how do people who've never bought online go back when you don't have to, if Amazon's not the only choice, how important is online purchasing to you once you've experienced it, if you've never experienced before? If you have used it before and now you're using it more often, 
what happens when the world opens up, how important to you was physical retail that's been excluded from you now? I mean, it, does, it, does it make you want it more? Does it make you be afraid of it? That kind of stuff. What are the anticipation about what you're gonna expect when you go to the physical retail once it opens up? Like there's a, a whole host of questions I've actually thought about a lot of those kinds of things. And, and it just to be, so you could imagine those, you can run experiments and all of that kind of stuff and think about all of those issues. And there are a lot of, and they're based, and you could also base them on a lot of behavioral economic kinds of theories on that. You can start to anticipate what you might likely see in some of these scenarios I just described to you. What I think you will see though, as a mega trend in retail is this merging towards what, what, the, what the retailers call omni-channel experience. And so I don't think people will think about it as either online or offline. I think they start to think about retail as a merging of online, offline. And we're being forced into that. So for example, in Pennsylvania, they recently opened up, we have state liquor stores, they opened up our state liquor store for curbside delivery. So what you have to do is go online, order online, and then you'll pick up in the store. That suggests that you don't see the retail experience as one or the other. You see it as some kind of synthesis of your online behavior and what happens in the store. Uh, and that's why I think retail is gonna go forward. And the, going to your question about smaller retailers, the smaller retailers who don't necessarily have a robust online existence right now, that's going to be something that people are going to start to expect. Um, and there's a lot of things like that. For example, people, the pain of paying. People have never really liked, you know, you shop in a store and then you have to wait on a long line to pay. That's not pleasant. You don't want to end your retail experience with an unpleasantly long line at the cash cash register. In fact, it might be so unpleasant you leave out without buying the purchase. So you're going to see a lot more Apple Pay, digital payment, pay on an app, you know, and that's going to involve the merging of offline and online retail. And if you're not at that level yet, that's, you're going to be left behind because that's going to be the new expectation. Yeah, that's very interesting. And um, the omni-channel scenario that you described uh, potentially, you know, being this natural experiment in, in people who had never wanted to do e-commerce suddenly are being forced to replenish or, or find new things um, through this. Uh, this is the only channel by which you'll be able to access uh, those goods. Um, and so, you know, how, how long will those behaviors last or will there be just certain elements of that retail experience that it's like, oh, phew, I can actually go back to wandering the wine store again and perusing right. those labels and those other things that uh, make it an enjoyable experience. One of the things that I saw uh, out, on a, out on, a, on a health walk uh, with the dog the other day was uh, something that a small business was doing uh, called window shopping and the store is is closed as a non-essential business but what they've done was they laid out their merchandise and set it up very elegantly in the front and then they said window shopping if you see any of these items that you want uh, you can purchase them uh, online so it's neat to see a small business thinking about using their retail footprint uh, to actually drive uh, uh, people going back to their online site. Now, I haven't seen the quality of that online site. But I thought that was a useful way that given that they're still, you know, paying their rent and they do have that retail uh, window uh, and uh, as a way to nudge people to go, oh, you know what, I love that sweater that was in the window. And I'm actually going to now take a look to see what their online experience is like. Yes, that's a perfect example of the merging of online offline. In that case, you're looking offline and then going back and by online. And in fact, I've seen a couple articles about that, like some of these uh, non-essential retailers have boarded up their windows and there's, they're losing the opportunity to use the window as a marketplace kind of, you know, let people see the physical thing. And it's even more that it's on an emotional level. It's they're blocking themselves off from being part of the community. One of the reasons I do think these small retailers matter is because it's the life of a city main street or a town main street. And to not have the, if these retailers, these small retailers went away, I think a lot of the quality of life 
in a lot of towns and cities would go away. And this idea of boarding themselves up and you know closing themselves off for one month, two months, three months, that could have a, a negative effect also, even even if it's not even that conscious. But you so so you're missing the opportunity to engage in some kind of omni-channel shopping possibility. But even more than that, you're missing the opportunity to signal you're part of this community, you're part of the environment. You know, I've been to New York since they've been doing a lot of the social distancing. You walk down Times Square and it's empty. It just feels like a ghost town, you know? And if on top of that, all the stores are boarded up, well, you can imagine lots of things that go wrong under a circumstance like that. And there has been evidence, you know, that the broken window theory about how important it is not to do stuff like that, because it's kind of a spiral downward. So there's a lot of implications of all of that, even if it's temporary. Yeah, so in terms of building on, on this idea of what might be useful for small business retail. So I think we're talking about leverage your window and, um, and boarding it up could have lasting effects um, between, between the business owner and the customer, let alone at the, at the social level. What other things come to mind in terms of building on the either leveraging the loyalty or actually trying to create loyalty where maybe a lot of small businesses have never felt this pressure to worry about omni-channel strategies and e-commerce capabilities. They had their little store, they had their regulars, life was, life was okay or good. Um, how and what steps do you think that the small business owners should be taking in, in the near term? Well, it's going to hit them on several different levels. Um, like I said, once people start experience the easiness of Amazon or other e-commerce retailers, but Amazon's been doing pretty much, there'll be certain types of products that just are easier to buy online and you may just want to naturally order it. And you can imagine if we get into automation like the, I, hesitate to say it because every time I say it, she responds. But when you like get into ordering Alexa by Alexa or something like that, or you get into the world of internet of things where, you know, when there's a space in your refrigerator, eventually it's just going to be automatically reordered and the drone is going to come in and replace it. And you'll have milk for the rest of your life without ever having to order it in the extreme. I mean, I don't know if that's ever going to happen, but you can imagine there's certain types of products that the convenience of reordering it and having it just delivered and it being at a small price is actually the way you want that transaction. So that would suggest the small business owners are gonna have to create product and services that people would prefer to buy in a real store. Now, what are those? Sometimes it's the social interaction. Sometimes it's things like food or sensual kinds of things, touch and feel, smell, you know, those kinds of things. Sometimes you need it even faster than you can get it in a two hour delivery. Sometimes you want it for the leisure or the entertainment of getting out of your house. All of those are gonna be reasons that people will absolutely want to go into a physical store, but for the store to compete, they're going to have to make sure they do all of those things right, or, or there won't be a reason to go to the store. So that's in general. And those kinds of things, going back to Thaler's terms, are really more about the transaction utility and not the acquisition utility per se. It's really more about the experience of buying. You know, somebody helping you make a decision or just getting out in the fresh air and feeling better about it or or feeling the material, picking out your own peaches. There's just something pleasure about, you know, about all of that. That's all transaction utility, not acquisition utility. Um, so, at least, but, and that's been happening in retail anyway, before COVID. So we've been seeing that move. Now, what does COVID do? What I think COVID is gonna add, and it's essential, is that customers are gonna have to feel comfortable and trust when they go into the store. So you are, I believe the better retailers will have uh, thermometers, will indicate, or you know, temperature sensors, or they will have indication that they are, they're more than clean, they're disinfecting. They will do these physical sim signals that will tell you, I am a retailer that cares about your health, and I am aware of the things that matter to you. 
And if they start signaling that, that will build, getting back to your initial questions about loyalty, I will trust you. I think trust is very, very important here. And it's trust that's going to build the loyalty over time. And then I'll prefer to buy from you than from these other things because I enjoy the relationship and I trust you. Mm -hmm. That's great. I think that this is the kind of practical advice that small businesses can, can build upon and help to differentiate themselves um, against, against Amazon where you've got the convenience, but you don't necessarily know, um, unless it's a pre-existing brand, you don't necessarily know about the, the quality of the, of the item that you're getting. Yeah, well, there's been a lot of pushback about uh, Amazon now, too, as well. They've been, you know, really doing a lot more business now. There's been a lot of pushback. There's counterfeits on. So, like, you get into all of that. There, you don't know sometimes what, who the third party is that you're buying from. 50% of the products sold, at least 50% of the products sold on Amazon are third-party merchants, and you have no idea who they are. Um, and so there's been much more counterfeiting. There, you, you can't trust what's going on. So that whole notion of trust, that's something that the local retailers, if they are aware of some of the new expectations given the COVID situation, will have a very, very strong advantage over Amazon or anybody that you can't see. The people that you can see and that you know, you know, if you signal the right things to me, I think you can build trust that will go a long way. That's excellent. So. I think that's a really powerful rallying cry for small business leaders to understand the different dimensions of trust and how they can leverage that where Amazon, like you said, has gone, has, has gone adrift in terms of uh, the control over the quality and then even the experience in terms of dealing with these third party merchants. So I think that's a vulnerability that uh, Amazon's uh, size has exposed itself to that makes an opportunity uh, for small business to, to stand up and, and, and get in there. That's great. I think very, very helpful. Um, so one of the things that we've got a, an intersection uh, between, our, between ourselves is with a firm called Hakuhodu. And uh, BE Works is a member of Q. Our firm was uh, acquired by Q, which is a subsidiary of the Hakuhodo Holdings uh, organization. And I'm thrilled for BE Works to be a part of this family. And one of the things that I found incredibly inspiring was the commitment that the firm has to say Katsusha and not referring to people as consumers, but rather understanding the role that consumption plays in an overall life cycle, an overall recognition of us as individuals, members of families, members of the community. And I was very interested in learning that you were a visiting scholar back in the 90s. A long time ago, yeah. I'd love to hear the stories about what was going on back then, um, and and was, um, you know, what were the things that that you took away from your experience working uh, with a Japanese company? What what stuck with you from that experience? Yeah, you know, it's so long ago. It's like over thirty years ago, I think that it was, um, but. Uh, the, the, what happened was the University of Tokyo had a relationship with the Hakuhodo Advertising Agency and they funded professors to come. I think we were in Japan, I can't remember, a number of weeks, either two to six weeks, somewhere in that period, enough to have an apartment. So we did have an apartment, but it wasn't, you know, it was a short-term apartment. We didn't stay in a hotel. So I, I can't remember exactly how long it was, but there, we were commuting. And so I really got involved in the Japanese lifestyle. And my kids were there. And my husband, my husband's an academic also. And we were both part of Hakuhodo and University of Tokyo. Um, and so we learned the culture. Like that was a really important thing to kind of learn the difference of the Japanese culture, which was quite different than what we were used to in America. Um, but what, and I, I, I think at that time I was doing a lot of loyalty work. So it probably was based on this customer decision-making and that kind of behavior. And I did a lot of work on variety seeking. And so when variety was good versus 
choosing loyalty and a lot of your choice behavior. But what was different about Hakuhodo at the time was the affiliation with University of Tokyo. So even at the time, they were very much, and you know, we were academics, we weren't practicing business people. And what they really wanted was the academic, the science point of view. And that's what they were, you know, it was the partnership with the university, with, with my university in the US and with the advertising agency to really understand customer behavior and how customers make decisions over time, run experiments, look at data. Uh, and, and that was exciting because what I've always liked about working in with industry people as opposed to just university people is they bring relevance. I, I think of research that's the best for me is research that's rigorous and relevant. And so the academic point of view, the experimentation can get at the rigor, which convinces me, you know, it's better than the plural of anecdote is not data, you know, that kind of notion. It's not just about a bunch of stories. Um, so I like the rigor of the science. But sometimes I think some experiments, they're just so, they, they control so much, they just don't mean anything in real life. And yeah, maybe you showed me that, but it, it's not gonna make any difference in real life. And so I like the merger, I like that intersection. And that was my experience with Hakuhodo and University of Tokyo, that that's what they were striving for. It was 30 years ago, so I don't know if that's still their philosophy. It is, and we have the pleasure of uh, being a part of that ongoing journey of bringing, of bringing scientific thinking and practices to understanding people. Oh, yes. It's... So I'd love to talk a little bit more about uh, your perspective on scientific thinking. So the mandate of BE Works is it's you know it's very audacious it's to transform society and the economy through scientific thinking and within that we embed behavioral insights as as the part of that framework of scientific thinking um i'd very much love to understand your perspective on um, the importance of scientific thinking uh, as a part of day-to-day -day business decisions well, I mean, in the end, if you can, if you have, and that's funny, I teach my students this all the time, you know, and we like, so I, I explain to them the difference in my mind between say an A-B test and a, and a different kind of experiment. Like in an A-B test, that, that's still scientific in some sense. There's data to prove the red background is gonna be better than the blue background. That simplifies A-B testing, but, and you obviously can do it much more sophisticatedly. But a lot of the theory behind A-B testing is kind of, you have some hypothesis for, you're not doing these things randomly, but you're testing a series of different kinds of things. And typically your um, dependent variable is conversion. And so you really tip in, and it's typically done a lot online where you can do these experiments very, very quickly and you can test tons of different variables at the same time. And you're, you're typically trying to get some type of conversion, whether it's like go deeper in the website or make a purchase or make a repurchase or something like that. And, and that's very useful, it's very practical. But I like to join that with, you know, understanding, well, why are they doing it? You know, what, what is the reason something like that's happening? And how will these different actions in the marketplace change consumer behavior? Uh, so it's not only purchase, but it could be these other kinds of behaviors that gets changed. And, and if I understand what I'm going to call the mediator or like something that happens before actually the purchase, I'm much better able to predict how changes in the environment will affect behavior. And I'm better able to predict whether there are differences in different cultures or different genders or something like that, because I understand what's driving the behavior. So that's of interest to me. And as I mentioned, I'm really interested in these automatic neuro responses, because I, to me, I'm particularly interested in eye tracking and those kinds of things, because I'm a believer that consumers make decisions based on their perceptions and perception is not always truth. So what matters more if eventually in conversion is what people perceive rather than what 
really is. And we know even things like color is a perception. The best example of color perception was that famous dress example, whether it was gold or white or blue or black, and the idea that even color is not an absolute. It's the way people perceive it as a function of your hypothesis about where the light is shining. That's, that says you're gonna actually literally see color differently as a function of where you think the light is hitting that dress. That's like a phenomenal idea that it's not really the color of the light, it's your perception of it. And so like some of the things I've been doing recently is like what gets people to pay attention or what gets them to linger, to spend more time, to dwell time on things. So those are scientific measures, very hard to fake. Um, and if I can understand what drives people attention, drives their attention or how they look at something, how they parse an assortment. I'm interested in assortments, you know, how they might, how they might look at a screen, what's going to get their attention, where are they going to look next, those kinds of things. Um, I think that's really powerful. And if I can move those, if I can understand what, what stimuli drives your attention and drives your gaze, and then I see how those patterns happen, I can then start to predict how you might make choices over time. Um, and so I guess that's a kind of nudge because it's an automatic way of looking at things that I know will change your behavior over time. It's pretty strong. And, and that's all based on science. It's based on um, evidence. It's not based on guessing. It's uh, so. I guess that's a long answer to your question. No, it's great. And it leads me to another part of scientific thinking. So, so it's, not, it's not just about um, being able to get answers to these questions that you're talking about and having that deeper understanding and then being able to leverage those insights to help build out stronger um, you know, business and sales strategies. But the other part of scientific thinking is actually having the curiosity to wonder and find interesting questions in the first place. And one of the things in my experience that, that surprises me and disappoints me is that we might have leaders who have you know, an omni-channel presence, but never really thought about something like the science of eye gaze and how important that is in fundamental design. And so I love the role of curiosity in stimulating good questions, or as you would put it, relevant questions that take um, unknown things and then ultimately translate those into strategies that can be very, very innovative. So I'd love to understand a little bit more about curiosity and questions, because I, I think that um, business people get kind of caught into the caught into the grind and they lose that that beautiful, powerful part of, of science, of thinking about and wondering, like, why is it like this? And what would it be like if it was different? Yeah, I think one of the ways to characterize the difference in what you're talking about is really what your dependent variable is. So if your dependent variable is really going to be conversion or repurchase behavior or something like that, that's going to drive very practical experimentation. And maybe it's even going to drive not, I mean, at least experimentation. I think you would think there's more evidence for that, but it might even just drive, I have an intuition that people are going to buy more under these circumstances. But if you're just constantly focusing on that dependent variable, it's a means to the end. Whereas I think what fosters the, um, the curiosity you're talking about is to look at some of these other dependent variables, like what causes people to act a certain way, or what's going to make people feel more trust, or what's going to get people's attention. Uh, and you start looking at, you, you kind of have to believe that those variables and understanding that consumer behavior at a deeper level will get you eventually to conversion. But, you know, things like, what do people think is fair? I mean, Thaler and Ariely did stuff like unfairness or trust, I mean, or honesty or things like that. So like, that's just like, I think this is fair. It's some of the famous Thaler um, uh, pricing experiments where people were willing to pay more money for something, not because they were getting higher acquisition utility, but because it was fair, you know, um, that kind of idea. And if understanding that people make decisions for altruistic reasons or for fairness reasons or for other types of reasons, 
that, first of all, that's interesting. I think that's fundamentally interesting. And it's fun to hypothesize those kind of things and it will spark curiosity. But I do believe that's the way people make decisions. I don't think they're so normative and like little machines going through things. I think they have these other reasons um, that they react to. And that's why I think nudges work um, because they appeal to these kinds of other utilities people have other than just straight maximizing, you know, expected value. Yeah. So a question for you um, in terms of the, the breadth of your career and, you know, you've seen a lot of questions evolving over the years is the role that uh, behavioral economics or behavioral science, if you've got a, a position on, on which one it's called, in helping transform business leaders' um, questions and the way they're thinking about their business. So we know that um, uh, Richard Thaler, Daniel Kahneman, Dan Ariely um, have, have really challenged so much of what business leaders have been trained around in terms of human behavior, like maximizing self-interest, maximizing utility. And suddenly we're learning from their uh, mainstream books that these tenants are actually normative rules that are great for building models, you know, and all things being equal, but they're only models. And then we have this much more descriptive way of understanding the real world. And when we harness that, we have a much more reliable mechanism for predicting behavior once we can harness these, these true truths about the way that people behave. Do you think that behavioral economics has has been a force for uh, innovation, or and and if if you do agree with that, and I don't mean to to lead you um, in that way, um, if you agree or disagree, um, how has it helped innovation, and and where are we at in that journey? Yeah, it's hard to argue with that. I mean, like I remember when I took my first economics course, I was taking it to get into MBA school, um, and they were teaching me the normative theories of economics, and I'm thinking. That's not how people act, you know, it's just not, you know, the famous example that um, Thaler tells about his peanuts, you know, like people wanted to put the peanuts in the other room, even though it's normal, it's, it makes more sense to have the peanuts here um, than to put them away so you don't eat them. But that's common sense. Everybody knows that, you know, so like, so these ideas, they behave, some of the basic theories or lives lost versus life saved, some of those really, really basic ones, the framing ones, the confirmation bias, all of those kinds of things, availability, you know, whether or not they're normative, they're just so obviously true in real behavior and being able to document them. You don't even have to see large sample sizes for many of those experiments because they're just so obviously true. You know, especially some of the very classic ones that Tversky and Kahneman did, you just know that that all makes sense. Um, and so the creativity there was, was creating the experiments to prove it. And, and, you know, some of the famous, famous experiments, Linda the bank teller for representative heuristic and those kinds of things, um, that was really creative work to come up with those kinds where it was just clear they're isolating this is not normative behavior it makes so much sense to people that you kind of had to develop an experiment to show they were wrong because they so fundamentally believe that the bias was the right behavior and the true behavior was the wrong behavior so i i very much respect all of that and um and i think it's very creative work and all of them have done some of those, you know, what they're known for, some of those iconic experiments. So how has it been useful? I think it's been useful for better, for worse by marketers. You know, the compromise effect or dominated alternatives. You can develop choice, you know, a choice architecture. And because you know how people are gonna make decisions, you know it's more likely people are gonna choose this item under these circumstances even though they should choose it based on the utility of the item, they're just not gonna do that. So you can absolutely increase market share based on that. Some of the more interesting work though, that's recently been done are the nudges in terms of getting people to save more or to do better health behaviors or the, the, the public policy uses of these nudges, I, I, you know, I think is phenomenal work because you know, it's very, when people were starting to make their own decisions for themselves and they're just not going to put the time into 
um, making the correct decisions for their savings, you know, for their 401ks, or they just, there's, that's too complicated to think about. And then the health decisions are too emotional to think about. If you can design a choice architecture that's gonna nudge them in the right behavior and make the decision easy for them, that's phenomenal. I, I think that philosophy makes a lot of sense. Yeah, that's great. One of the things is um, so much of this research um, was developed um, using very controlled lab settings and, and students. And then we've got the complexity of the real world. How many of these insights, and, and because the science is so new still, and, it, and you know, decades is, is relatively young when it comes to uh, profound insights about human behavior, um, how important do you think uh, the role of experimentation is in developing business strategies that are dependent on these scientific insights? Where do you draw the line between we don't know if it's going to work here. We still need to learn versus this one's super powerful, just apply. Yeah, I think that the original work and the first generation work of behavioral economics and, and coming up with these principles, that was great. But they definitely don't apply in all situations. We know even robust things. I mean, framing is pretty robust. I haven't seen that many evidence against framing. But things like the compromise effect doesn't always work. You don't always choose the one in the middle. It's a function of the, the design of the choice set. If you move out of these idealized choice sets from two to three to four to what we now have online, which is endless assortment, what is the compromise effect? That doesn't even make any sense. So I think that that first generation of behavioral economics was classic, fantastic work. But the next generation of work is testing this in online and repeated experiments. But I've, I've gotten involved in packaging research. And I know a lot of the market. So what we know about pack, if, if you follow my logic on perceptions, people buy what they perceive is to be true, not what's actually true. And what a lot of the science has shown is shocking. People will make their decisions based on the package, not what's inside the package. First of all, they'll choose the product based on what the package or the shape of the bottle looks like. But second of all, not, not just will they choose it for that reason, but when they taste the product or use the product, the packaging or the shape of the bottle will influence how they think the product takes or the efficacy of that. So if you start believing that, and there's just a lot of evidence that that's the case, that that's true, then you're gonna to wanna to start using these nudges in, in, circum, you know, in bigger circumstances. You can design online, you can do it as an online kind of experiment in a big online shopping place, or you can build out stores where there's packages and you can run experiments and show how these little nudges in the, in the package design will influence market share significantly. And little tiny tweaks will make huge differences. So you can run lots of different kinds of experiments to do all sorts of different things like that. And I think that's an example in the area that I know of taking these behavioral economics concepts and generalizing it to a market situation, but using the same basic ideas, but just testing it in much more realistic settings. And for business people, I think that's valuable. Yeah, yeah, so testing, ongoing testing, ongoing refinement of questions, uh, taking prior research and seeing what's relevant in different scenarios sounds like a very, very dynamic ecosystem. And then the boundary between what is an academic institution versus what a scientific institution really starts to blur when our business leaders start to talk about hypothesis generation and exploration. And potentially then we have scientific thinking just being another part of uh, a robust MBA or any other kind of credentialization of, of a business leader that when they're, when they're that robust in the link between um, coming up with good questions, looking at the measures, and wanting to develop evidence of you know, what was the causal mechanism for this change in our impact. I'm very excited about that. I think that uh, we have the potential to really improve society um, when this kind of work, even in marketing and coming up with a package design, and no, no, I know it's not, I know it's not the public policy goals that you talked about. I know 
the package design isn't the same thing as getting people to save more for their retirement. I know it's not the same as driving the, you know, the health, you used health as, you know, improving their, improving their health. I, I know that, but there is a social good in getting business leaders to think scientifically because I believe that ultimately that can be a very persuasive way for all of us to inoculate ourselves against pseudoscientific thinking and to improve um, how we think in, in the world. And the role of, of science and running these experiments, every marketing manager who's that much savvier to quality of evidence in their day-to-day -day life now um, might have a stronger way to go, wait a second, what's the, what's the evidence behind maybe this uh, you know, anti-vaccination message? Exactly, and I do think that this COVID world is, is really, teaching people what an experiment is. Because even, I mean, I guess most people learn the scientific method in junior high school or something, so they have a vague recollection of what it was. But when it's a life or death kind of decision like this, and you know there's all these teams all over the world working for it, and you understand it's gonna take eight, I mean, to, to understand that it's gonna take a very long time to get the vaccine because of all the testing they have to do, you start to get a sense of how important the evidence is and you understand the stakes are very high. You need to know whether it works, you need to know the side effects, you need to know what happens if you give it to a healthy person, what happens if you give it to a not healthy person. All of those kinds of decisions become very clear because this problem is so front and center and so important to everybody, I think, People are learning the scientific method, and in that sense, you know, if that's accelerating the discussion you're talking about in business leaders, that's kind of a good a silver lining to the... Yeah, yeah. I wanted to, uh, to talk a little bit more about your experience in the specific domain of retail uh, grocery shopping. Um, we're working on a project with a global leader in consumer packaged goods. And they are very committed to the UN sustainability goals. In particular, uh, their CEO has made a public declaration and a firm wide commitment to the reduction of food waste. And I find this uh, connection um, being made between a company trying to be a a profitable firm at the same time making a commitment to a, a social good that requires transformation um, within the company but also demands transformation in terms of consumer behavior so while they're happy to sell their their sauce and their other products uh, they also want consumers to be less wasteful and more mindful about their their waste. Um, what would be some of your what are some of your thoughts and reactions to uh, to to this kind of commitment to social good and the raising of the bar of that companies have in terms of consumers participating in making the world a better place? Yeah, I'm a huge I'm a huge fan of all of that, and I really respect the firms that do that kind of stuff. Um, and I can talk about it. Obviously, there's a social good to that. So, so, I, but I can also be like from a business point of view, why it's good business also. Um, well, first of all, there's a growing dissatisfaction with politicians. Um, it doesn't really matter which side you're at, especially in the US. I don't know how much this generalizes to all other cultures, but it's very much the case in the US where politics has just gotten so polarized that at, regardless of which side you're on, you feel like people are fighting to get their point across rather than to try to do something for the common good. And as a result, the government is just chunky, clunky. It's not moving fast enough because people aren't working together. Maybe there's a little bit more of togetherness under COVID. Maybe to some degree, people see that as the common enemy. But even still, you feel some polarization and people are doing things for the soundbite or whatever. And as a result of that, it's been a trend for maybe a decade that consumers are looking towards business leaders to take the lead on these issues. You know, Starbucks has famously done things like that. Bill Gates now, when he started doing 
his foundation, people are believing that if you're smart enough to build a multi-billion dollar business, maybe you're smart enough to start using those brains and figuring out ways to make the U.S. better or the world better or, or you know, the climate better. So I think it was those two forces, the disillusionment with politicians and the putting the more weight on business to take the lead in some of these big the trend that was happening. The, new, the data are showing that the newest generation of consumers, Generation Z and the young millennials, will buy products based on the, their belief that the firms are doing the right thing on these issues. This has always been something, if you ever did, this is why I don't really believe in surveys. If you ever did surveys and asked people 50 years ago, should a firm do the right thing or do the wrong thing? Like, you know what the answer is to that. But the question is, will you be willing to pay more for a product if firm is doing the right thing and typically that behavior wasn't observed they'd say one thing and do another but the younger people maybe they're afraid that the earth is going to blow up or you know this is even pre-covid they really do put their money where their mouth is and they invest in these brands that are doing the right thing so what a brand means today is very different from what a brand used to mean. Like in the really old, old days, a brand like Gillette, Coke, those brands, the really old brands like that, were associated with product values. So when you thought about Coca-Cola, you would think about brown fizzy liquid. You thought about Gillette, you'd think about a, a blade. Now they've tried to change and modernize the brands as we've gotten into the future, but originally they were very product focused. Then there was in the 90s, there was a time when the brands were customer focused. They meant value, you know, they meant certain customer benefits. It was about open happiness for Coke or performance for Nike. It's not so much product attribute, but it's more of a customer benefit. But if you look at the really big brands now, it's about what you're talking about. Not only being a customer based brand, but being a brand that thinks it's their responsibility to do something to make the world a better place. And if you don't have business policies like that, your brand will not be, there's just evidence out there that your brand will not be perceived as a strong brand unless you take on some of that responsibility. Oh, that's great. Um, I have one last question for you, which is I'd love to understand um, has there been something out of the pandemic that has affected you personally that is a positive, something positive that you will take with you as, as the world moves hopefully towards uh, containing the virus or mutating into something you know, that's not so problematic or we develop that vaccine and you look back on this time? What's something that has changed you that's a, a positive thing that you hope stays with you for the rest of your life it's funny because you know i, I I'm, I'm a workaholic you know i'm somebody who's just always worked work work just the way I'm, I'm built and um really never questioned it and i i i travel a lot so i'm actually concierge key on american which means i traveled over two hundred thousand miles last year and i and I think I traveled 250,000 miles last year and 200,000 miles the year before. That is a lot of travel. Um, that's, that's quite a bit. And when you do that much travel, you're traveling practically every week and your, your decisions are being made under very heavy constraints, you know, because I'm only here at this amount of time and I'm going to do this and I'm getting the notices, my airline is coming and I have to plan work I can do on the plane. And there's all this external constraints that are driving my business or the way I live. And with COVID instantly, that's just all gone. And all I can do is wake up in the morning and face the day without really any constraints. And that is a very liberating feeling um, to feel about what do I think is more important? What are the things I want to work on? Um, and I think everybody's been having to, to face those questions. You know, they may not be traveling 200,000 miles, but they've had like all sorts of external constraints that are now gone. Now, I'm lucky I don't have little kids at home. And I can imagine having little kids at home has thrown a whole different 
and you know, th a thing into the dealing, like you were saying, with having a dog and kids and trying to manage a household when you're used to having time to work by yourself. That's a whole different world, but it's not the world I've had. The world I've had is that all the constraints are gone and I come down in the morning and I work on the things I think I want to work on. And that's been illuminating to me as to what matters, what I want to work on, what my values are. Uh, I don't want to do this forever, but it's been an interesting experiment. Yes, oh, very good. I appreciate you sharing that. And I very much celebrate uh, the fact that you've had a chance to think about the things that you're curious about. And we know that our environment imposes so much sort of routine and choice on us and we're not even aware of it, that you've had a natural experiment of now that those constraints and impositions have been removed, that you get a chance to kind of see the world with fresh eyes and uh, carry on with uh, asking and exploring very interesting questions. So I very much appreciate you taking time to share your research uh, with us and it was very, very insightful. Thank you. Yeah, it was a pleasure speaking with you. I really like your perspective on things. <laughs> Thank you. Cool.